Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Kelly Drennan, founding executive director of Fashion Takes Action. Now, Fashion Takes Action got its start in 2007, before the words fashion and sustainability were ever really iterated in the same sentence. And when they were, they were kind of deprioritized to the bottom of the totem pole. No one really cared about it. And fast forward 13 years to today, Fashion Takes Action works with hundreds and hundreds of brands and organizations around the world, helping them rethink the way they bring new lines, new materials to life, changing the way that consumers buy and consume on a regular basis. And in the episode, Kelly and I will discuss what inspired that initial eureka moment back in 2007, the effect COVID has had on the fashion industry, and the emergence of the virtual fashion show, and the most interesting ideas she's seeing in the fashion ecosystem. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Kelly Drennan, founding executive director of Fashion Takes Action. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Kelly, what I like to do at the top of every interview is give the listeners just a little bit of context. What is Fashion Takes Action? Well, we are Canada's premier nonprofit organization that's devoted to advancing sustainability in the fashion industry. And we actually are unique in that we don't just work with the industry, but we actually also work with consumers. So we kind of actually call it the fashion system in a way. So it's consumers who buy fashion and helping them understand how they can make better consumption choices and also um, care for their clothes. And then on the industry side, we work with uh, brands and retailers and academics from anywhere from educational opportunities and events to collaborative multi-stakeholder projects. Wow. And I want to bring it back to the first mile because as I can see here on your site, Fashion Takes Action started in 2007. And <laughs> it's funny because yesterday I interviewed uh, one of the co-founders of the Plastic Pollution Coalition. Mm-hmm. And they got their start roughly 10 years ago. But this takes it back even further 13 years ago. So mm-hmm. what I'd love to hear is in 2007, right, what motivated you to start organization like Fashion Takes Action. What was that eureka moment? Yeah, I mean, call me crazy was definitely a long time ago, but I had been working in conventional fashion PR and events for a number of years, working with a lot of Toronto fashion designers and helping them, you know, produce fashion shows at fashion weeks and other sort of monumental events. And I had two daughters, and so I had a two-year-old and a newborn, and I saw Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. And it just did something to me and really like rocked me to my core. And, and here I had these two babies, and the future of the planet for them was in jeopardy. And I just really thought, okay, what can I do? What do I know? And how can I apply this sort of new approach to something that I know and that I care about. And that was fashion. Mm -hmm. And so in January of 2007, one of those late night, early morning feedings really was struck with this idea of 
producing a fashion show, you know, instead of being on the other side where I'm promoting it and getting all the right people there, I was like, okay, I'm ready to actually produce one myself. And this one's going to be sustainable. And we called it the Green Gala. And um, the idea really was that I was a publicist. I wasn't planning on completely pivoting and, and starting a nonprofit. I just thought I'd host this regular sort of annual, I guess, uh, fashion show fundraiser for an environmental NGO and raise awareness for fabrics. But then I also realized early on that conventional fashion shows have such a like crazy footprint. The lighting and, and the energy and the hair and the makeup and the build in general and, and all that goes into it. So I started rethinking all of those components of the fashion show and how do I make it have a lightest footprint as possible. And so I worked with Carbon Zero and it was a completely carbon neutral fashion show. Everything from my runway was 1800 square feet of sod, which I later donated to the city of Toronto Parks and Rec to be reused afterwards. So every single detail was thought through that way. And what that did was it really, for me, became this much grander aha moment where I realized that even at that time, we didn't even know how damaging the industry was. This was so long ago, but I just felt that there was so much potential. And then that really opened the floodgates. And I realized designers from across the country were contacting me, asking if they could find recycled buttons or sustainable thread. And I really didn't have the answers. And so when I started digging for the answers, I realized that there was no resource out there to support this growing movement of smaller independent designers because there was no big brands talking about this back then. So anyway, that's kind of a, a much longer explanation for, for my craziness back in 2007. But yeah, really, so, really happy that I started it and kept it and persevered. And yeah, uh-huh. nice to see some traction happening finally. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine even to this day, uh, a lot of people will call either private initiatives or nonprofit initiatives that are working on solving some of these core issues crazy. There are still a lot of people who are not convinced that what we're doing is meaningful in any way. These are iterative steps. Mm -hmm. And back in 2007, I mean, it was almost a whole different world. Mm -hmm. Like you talked about, everything from the terminology being used to the general sentiment across the world is just it's a totally different place than what it is today. So if we fast forward to to now Mm -hmm. and you talk about a little bit of success that you're feeling now, I mean, clearly you've been running for over 13 years, so you you got something right. What are the core pillars or what are kind of your core focus areas uh, of the organization today? And how does FTA run today? What are the core projects? Mm-hmm. How are you making sure that initial feeling you felt back in 2007 is being represented in the most effective way today? It's a great question. And we have been around for a long time and, and we've tried so many different things. And it's interesting when we get you know new board members or, or new staff and people say, oh, what about this? And it's like, oh, well, we we tried that. And speaking of being sort of iterative and, and I think being sort of nimble and flexible in a lot of a lot of ways has really kind of helped us focus in on what is most effective and how we can truly drive our mission. We've tried a members-based model and this was back in the early years when it was the smaller independent designers that were 
really kind of driving this movement and who needed the most support. We never once in a million years thought we'd be working with the big brands. But then in 2014, we started our WEAR conference, which is the World Ethical Apparel Roundtable. And really that came to be because we started to see on a global level, big brands starting to engage in sustainability. And we felt that in order for the Canadian industry to really take some action, why not bring these global leaders and experts to share best practices, come to Toronto, and then make it a lot easier, more accessible, more affordable for Canadian brands to access that information and to start thinking about how they can incorporate CSR and sustainability into their strategy. So that was really a big shift for us. And it's something that we still do today. We we are now planning the seventh WEAR conference. It will be virtual, however, because of COVID. Um, and, And then also, you know, we really the last few years have been focusing in on on textile waste, right? So this idea of making fashion circular. And it came up I think at one of our conferences in 2016 was really the first time that we brought the conversation to the conference platform. And and really the the interest and the feedback we got from attendees really indicated that this was an area of particular interest. And and a lot of brands were starting to realize just how much waste they had. And so in order to change a system, you can't do that in a silo. And no one group is really responsible for the problems that the fashion industry is facing. You know, consumers are to blame because we're buying too much stuff and we're buying too much crap and we're um, throwing it in the garbage. And the industry is just making too much and they're making it unethically and, and not sustainably. And then government needs to kind of make some changes around policies. So so really this multi-sectoral or stakeholder collaborative approach has been quite effective for us in terms of seeing change happen. And and it's something that we do plan on really continuing, particularly in the circular fashion space. So yeah, I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to really how the industry is going to emerge from this pandemic and how FTA can really position itself to be supportive in in whatever way, and perhaps even taking a leadership position Mm -hmm. in some of these areas. What I I want to uh, dive in a little bit further on that last note because COVID has impacted every industry. Some mm-hmm. sometimes in ways that are, are more fortunate than others. We've seen booms in e-commerce and online grocery, and in other situations, it's been the polar opposite. You know, mass closings, mm-hmm. uh, severe year-over-year declines, and fashion is. I think at this interesting inflection point because mm-hmm. some would argue that the kind of cascade of effects from COVID has been probably good from a climate perspective, less mm-hmm. buying. Other people say it's bad because the second people can start shopping again, it's like a to- it's a reset mm-hmm. on attitudes and sentiments. So from your perspective, what have you seen as the more systematic effects or impacts of COVID on fashion today? And what do you forecast will happen after we go back to some semblance of normalcy? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Fashion has been really hit hard by this pandemic from the garment workers in the factories who haven't been paid and and the suppliers who haven't been paid through to retails shutting down and furloughs. And unfortunately, in some cases, sustainability teams have been furloughed 
And, and it was unfortunate because we were seeing quite a bit of movement and pro progress, particularly here in Canada, around sustainability and, and our conference last October. We had the, the largest number of big brands come out in, in any of our six years. And we were really excited for, for this sort of progress. And then this pandemic hit and sustainability is not necessarily priority right now. But mm -hmm. I think as we reemerge, I feel like the brands who have sustainability in their DNA, that that's part of their core offering, I think they're going to come through this as the winners. You know, consumption has changed. I think we, like you mentioned, we're all recognizing that staying at home and buying less and doing less has in some ways regenerated nature and, and Mother Earth, and there's much less pollution. And my hope is that we will be more mindful when it does, when things open back up and we start spending again, that will be less impulsive. You know, fashion is such an impulsive buy, especially if you look at it even from a retail therapy, right? So I think it is a time to reset. I think right now brands are just struggling to pay their bills and keep their employees. I think once they kind of get a handle on that, it's going to be all about what can we do as an industry to change a very broken model, even from the fashion shows, right? So they've all gone virtual with this. And we're seeing like, yes, there's a huge carbon footprint flying all over the world. You've got all these editors from various magazines and you've got buyers and they do however many shows a season. It's incredible. And then there's also just the builds themselves and the millions of dollars that goes into building these fashion shows that last half an hour. Virtual fashion shows. Super interesting because I've seen a lot of tinkering in the startup world and trying to move conferences, events, workshops, all things in person online. And most of the time, it's been a simple copy paste, right? Mm -hmm. There's been this I think initial assumption that, wait, we could just just copy paste the experience we've come to appreciate in person and move it online using Zoom or some combination of tools. And I think what we found is that it, that's overwhelmingly misguided. It works mm -hmm. fine for maybe conversations like you and I are having now, but the second you scale to something that is either entertainment in nature and requires attendance from a large number of people. We, we need better solutions, solutions that are more reflective of what an online experience should look like. So mm -hmm. on the topic of virtual fashion shows, what have you seen here? What's been the most interesting, either innovation, technology, solution here that's been introduced or you've heard is going to be introduced mm -hmm. over the last few weeks? Well, first I have to say that you know, even before COVID, there were various fashion weeks were canceling. And I think that to me indicates that there's already something wrong with the idea of a fashion week and the purpose of them, the cost that goes into them, both the environmental cost and the actual financial cost. And, you know, with social media and Instagram, 
a lot of brands get better traction anyway there than they do necessarily through traditional media. So that's definitely something to, to consider. From an innovative sort of approach and things that I've been hearing, VR seems to be an interesting one. And I have yet to experience it, but I do know that that there's VR being considered for runway, but even for a conference experience. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how that looks and if it's affordable to the mm-hmm. average person, how you actually get your hands on whatever eyewear mm-hmm. is required. So that's going to be really interesting to watch for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also this sort of virtual 3D almost technology that allows you to see a garment in a way that you might not even be able to see it necessarily on in person. There's maybe more sort of details to it that that you can see on a computer screen that might actually help in terms of understanding fit and fabrication and things like that. I definitely don't think it's a bad thing. I was really not a fan of fashion shows. If you think about it, it's really why I started Fashion Takes Action in the first place was sort of looking around me at all the waste that was coming out of these conventional shows for, you know, 10 minutes of flashing cameras. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of better ways to do it. But I do think that it'll be interesting to see the virtual reality piece and how that Mm -hmm. emerges and and grows. So if we look at the future and we look at some of these big ideas that will shape the future of fashion and as fashion takes action looks to be a part of that future, building it, supporting it, I want to drill down uh, maybe one or two of the more interesting ideas or really early startups or existing kind of moonshot ideas that you're seeing in your ecosystem. So for the listeners, mm-hmm. you know, what are the one or two most interesting projects that fit that criteria? Hmm. So transparency is a big problem, right? In this industry, it's a very opaque industry. And with the Rana Plaza factory collapse, from that grew fashion revolution, right? Which is now this global over 100 countries participate in this now year round. And and I think the pressure that they've put on brands, but also that sort of through that movement and, and through some of the work we do to empower consumers with the ability and the knowledge to know that we actually do have power as consumers. We vote with our wallet and we can put pressure on brands as well. But I think what's happened is that brands have said, okay, well, this transparency thing is important. We got to look at this. And But before we can, if you think about transparency as showing, right? So it's like you're telling, you're showing. It's a story around uh, what you're doing and how it's being made and who's making it and, and what they're being, you know. Mm-hmm. You need to first know what's going on, right? So you need to have that traceability. And I think, you know, that is a much bigger challenge for brands is knowing going all the way back to the farm where the cotton was grown. You know, in many cases, brands do not know beyond the first tier. So what's happened is you've seen this push for transparency creating this need for traceability. And so through that, we see all these really cool apps and, and you know, there's blockchain and there's, you know, mapping tools. And, and so I think that's something that we're going to continue to see. So I, I am not really pointing out any particular company, but there's, you know, in sort of that general 
Mm-hmm. theme. And then the other side, I was just going to say like, you know, materials. I think that there's some really interesting experiments that are happening in labs. You know, it's really, fashion's kind of at the intersection right now of like science, technology, and innovation. It's really, it's really exciting. So you're seeing, you know, fibers, fabrics being made from mushrooms and kombucha and pineapple fibers. And, you know, of course, cork and, and sort of coconut leaves and things like that. So I think that piece is going to actually only, and algae, you know, is another one. And I think more and more companies are going to start experimenting with, with that, um, looking at truly vegan leather alternatives and not this like, you know, basically pleather, which is, mm-hmm. is plastic alternative. So I think that is going to be really interesting. And then I also think the recycling piece. So that the third I'd say area to watch is the recycling technologies and, and, you know, mechanical tech recycling has been around for a long time. And what that is, is that's like your big shredder, right? So you you put all the the post-consumer, pre-consumer, whatever it is that you're, you're recycling through this big shredder. And, and then from that, you could make insulation and under padding and and things like that. then there's the chemical recycling, which is literally taking a t-shirt, liquefying it, extracting a fiber, spinning a new yarn and making a new garment from it. So I think that that there's going to be a, a lot more focus on the business case for, for this. There's That's where I think we need to see a lot of investment. I think governments need to step up and invest in the infrastructure. And yeah, and, I, and you know, at Fashion Takes Action, we're actually doing some work with the federal government through the the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change as part of a larger plastics agenda, looking at how to get synthetics out of the landfill. And as part of that solution is, could we actually look at creating a local recycling infrastructure in Canada and, and who would be, you know, what is the end product and who are the end markets for this? And so that's really exciting. That's kind of the next 10 months for us in terms of a really big project that we're working on. So yeah, those are I'd say the three biggest areas in terms of innovation that we'll we'll be focusing in on over the next little while. Mm-hmm. Before we part ways, Kelly, uh, one of my favorite recurring questions is about the guests' idea graveyard, and the notion here is uh, we're probably alike in that uh, every day or every week we. We think of this new idea. We add it to, you know, a little note we have on our iPhone or we, you know, we jam on it for 24 hours and then it just gets thrown away to the idea graveyard where it rots, right? And most of the time, the idea is probably eh, but there's typically a select few that you'd love to work on, but you just don't have the time to execute. So my question for you is, what are one of those ideas? What are one of these ideas rotting away? in your idea graveyard that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do so? Time and money. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Right. So I think, yeah, if, if we had money, because I think, you know, time, I could always find time. What I would love is to create the Canadian circular fashion innovation center, something along those lines where we have a physical space multi-levels where you have, you know, street level shops that are only selling recycled, upcycled and secondhand items. You've got the next level up where you have 
you know, sustainable designers in studios creating their, their beautiful designs. Then you've got a floor of labs where you've got all this R&D happening and prototyping. You've got a floor for, you know, the communications teams, an event space so you could host clothing swaps and workshops. And then, of course, you know, at the back, a big recycling warehouse where we can do mechanical shredding and tearing and felting and pr- make mm-hmm. products for automotive and building and carpet and furniture. And then you've got your chemical recycling lab space where we're actually turning fashion into fashion and create this massive just center and all the jobs that we could be creating under this as part of the low carbon economy and this move towards circular circularity. To me, that is a dream. If I could find, I don't know, $20 million, I could do that. I'd love to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly, if, if there are any people that are listening to this this episode that want to support a moonshot idea like this, now they know how to find you. Kelly, before we part ways, what I'd love to do is roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, uh, words of wisdom, hiring needs, you know, anything you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. Hmm. Well, I think it really comes back to, you know, taking ownership for our, our part as consumers and, you know, rethinking how we are buying our clothes and how we are caring for our clothes and reducing our consumption caring for the clothes that we do have, loving our clothes because they'll last longer. Yeah, I'd say those are my closing thoughts. Love it. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a pleasure. We'll have to do this in 12 months or so. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. All right, take care. (laughs) Okay. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, If you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at PeterA11. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.